0: I invite you to take your Bibles and let's go over to First Peter three, verses one to six, and today I'm talking about the subject of what it means to be a submissive woman. I also have a bulletproof vest on today, and so I'm greatly encouraged by my role in life. And if I have to go out today, I go out. So here we go. I'm just kidding. This week, a um, much-anticipated book was released. You'll be hearing about it, I'm sure, if you follow someone on Twitter and evangelicalism. It's called The Benedict Option, written by Rod Dreher, A Strategy for Christians in a Post-Christian Nation. The book attempts to address how do Christians live when the culture around them has begun to decay? In other words, how do you live in the world and preserve the gospel? And Dreher encourages Western believers to look to the example of the sixth-century monk, Saint Benedict, who navigated the collapse of the Roman Empire, navigated the Dark Ages by creating thriving communities within the community of the world and preserved the gospel through an ever-changing and ever-hostile culture. He gives this insightful quotation, The first Christians gained converts not because their arguments were better than those of the pagans, but because people saw in them and their community something good and beautiful, and they wanted it. This led them to the truth. Now, Dreyer is trying to find a strategy of how to live in the world and how to preserve the gospel. He's trying to help 21st century evangelical Christians think through how do we navigate the culture, and what he does is he examines the lessons from the Benedictine monastery movement in order to develop a possible roadmap. Now, to be honest, I'm somewhat skeptical of yet another monastic movement, but I understand his concern. In fact, his concern and the reason he wrote that book is why we are in 1 Peter. The question is, how do we live in our present culture? How do we live out the gospel when society becomes post-Christian? How do we evangelize the world? What should our church look like? And what kind of people should we be? In the case of our text today, the question is even more specific. How does a Christian wife live in a marriage when that marriage is the place of her exile? That's a huge question. And it's very personal for some of you. That's where you live. This text, 1 Peter 3, 1-6, is often cited in various treatments about marriage, and it should be because it certainly does relate to marriage. But What I don't want you to miss is the broader context of the book of 1 Peter. There are many places where God calls us to live out our Christian exile. And I would argue there are few places more painful and more challenging than when a godly wife is trying to follow Jesus when being married to an ungodly man or an unbeliever. What this text shows us is that married Christian women live as exiles, first and foremost, through God-honoring submission. So whether you're married or single, whether you're in a good marriage or whether you're in a bad marriage, whether you're married to a believer or an unbeliever, whether you're a man or a woman, there are really important lessons to learn here because what Paul does is he takes this concept of being a Christian exile and he applies it in one of the most personal, one of the most intimate, and one of the most painful realities of what it sometimes it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now we're back in First Peter and I don't imagine after taking a four week break that many of you remember where we are in this book. So let me just give you a quick review. First Peter is written to people who became exiles without ever leaving their country. Their culture shifted around them. They were followers of Jesus and then that culture became hostile. Peter's trying to help these believers think through how do you live in a countercultural way? How do you live out the gospel, especially when that world in which you live is complicated and when it's hostile? In chapter 1, Peter points these believers and to us toward a heavenly inheritance, toward understanding what suffering means and how suffering in this lifetime results in praise and glory at the final day of judgment. Peter calls them to, to be a holy people in the midst of where they are living, that they should be Christian exiles who see the world differently, see themselves differently, see suffering differently, that understand why they are on earth and how they should be godly in the present age. In chapter two, he extends that even further and he talks about their identity. Namely, that Christian exiles, Peter says, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, a people for God's own possession. And if you were to hear that Christian identity the wrong way, you might hear that believers think that they're not only people who have, God, who have God's blessing upon them, but then they need, they need no other king or no other master or no other human institution. And if you're a foreign ruler or a ruler giving guidance to people, you might hear Christianity as fomenting rebellion or are advocating our anarchy. After all, these people might say, my king isn't Caesar, my king is Christ. I obey the Bible, I don't have to obey your laws. I don't have to pay taxes, I give to the Lord. So Christianity could be seen as a threat to society, but instead Peter says, no, 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 Christian exiles don't usurp authority, rather they find ways to live inside that authority. And that's why he begins by applying it in chapter 2 and verse 13 to every human institution, submission needs to be given. That the normative posture for the believer is this willing obedience, even if it's a human institution. Lest we say, well, the IRS isn't real, the government isn't real, speed laws don't apply, I'm redeemed in Christ, all my sins are forgiven, watch me. Well, what Peter is saying is that we need to submit to every human institution, and then also to employers who are not kind. So one of the main ways, then, that believers live out their exile, one of the main ways they do it, whether it's to human institutions or whether it's to their employers, is by this idea of joyful, God-centered, and eternally-minded submission. And that is not the fallback position for believers. It is the main way that they express their Christian exile. So now we come to the issue of wives. This instruction to married women is not simply a singular command that has no reference point to the other things around it, but rather it's simply the next expression of what the exiled life is supposed to look like. So it's not some random command given to married women, but rather it's part of the overall message where Peter is trying to help believers navigate their way through a hostile culture, and yet for married women, this Command is very important to understand and embrace. So in verses 1 to 6, Peter gives three affirmations of submission. He identifies that Christian women live out their exiled life first and foremost through godly submission. So we need to figure out what godly submission is because Peter affirms it. So here's what he says first. He identifies that submission, first and foremost, is a strategy in dealing with imperfect husbands. So verse 1 begins with the word likewise. That word connects it to everything that was said previously. and That's why I think that verses 1 to 6 follow the argument of 1 Peter chapter 2. In particular, it comes right after Peter talks about the example of Jesus, beginning in verse 21 of chapter 2. He says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So that's the context in which then Peter says, likewise wives. He's he's using the example of Jesus and showing wives what is the immediate application of where do you live this Christ-likeness out? Or maybe better, where is a really hard and challenging place where you feel the rub of your Christian exile, and where and how do you live this? Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So the word subject, the word submission, it's an important word to define. It's the same word that's used in verse 13, same word that's used in chapter 2 and verse 18. It essentially means to arrange under. It's two Greek words put together, to arrange under. Or think of it this way, it means to follow, to put oneself in rank behind. The idea is joyfully, willingly following another's leadership. So, when we talked about this in relationship to government, we learned that respect and obedience to the laws of the land, even if we don't believe those institutions are ultimate, is how we express our being submissive. When it comes to servants and masters, believers should follow the the pace of their masters, they should follow the leadership of their masters, and even the ones who aren't kind or reasonable. Submission then involves biblical attitudes. It involves godly actions that, in effect, see beyond the earthly institution, see beyond the earthly master, or in this case, see beyond the earthly husband, and look to honor God through how that person relates to the earthly person. So submission means this. You follow your husband's leadership. You pray for him. You affirm him. You honor him relates to one's attitude. Now, I can't put an enormous number of handles on this idea of submission, because frankly, it's more about the, the reference of the heart. It's more about an attitude. Frankly, you wives have to figure out how this works out in the context of your marriage as it relates to your own personality, your own struggles, and your husband's personality, and his particular struggles. But the idea is that the normative posture for a Christian exile, whether it's in relationship to human institutions or as it relates to human masters, is this idea of submission, and the same thing applies in the context of marriage. Now, Peter applies it very specifically. Be subject to your own husbands. Why does he say this? Two reasons. First, Peter has in mind the particularly challenging situation when a wife has become a believer and her husband is not. Or if she's a believer and trying to live a godly life and he is not interested in doing the same. Peter is speaking into one of the most challenging scenarios in life where a woman finds herself trying to follow Jesus and she's married to a man who is not. And how do you go home every day to somebody who's not on the same page? How do you make a home with or make love to someone who doesn't love the same king? How do you respond when that person acts in a sinful way? What does a husband, what does the wife do rather, if her husband and she are not on the same page? What, What what do you do? What if your marriage is your exile? How disappointing. How hard? And frankly, how scary talk more about this in a moment in terms of what the playbook is but the second reason that Peter says your own husbands is because he is not saying that all women should submit to all men she's not saying he's not saying somehow that that women are lesser in value sometimes people have used this text as the basis of communicating that women are inferior that they shouldn't have their own opinions or they should submit to every man In fact, during Paul's day, the New Testament was fairly progressive. Galatians 3.28 tells us that in Christ there is neither male nor female. It means that the Bible doesn't gut gender as if male and female don't matter, but what it says is that value is actually underneath gender because we're all one in Christ. Additionally, lest you think that A woman should never have authority over a man in any case or in any situation. 1 Corinthians 7, 4 indicates that there is mutual authority over a married couple's body. In regards to sexuality, Paul says that a man doesn't have the right to his own body just for himself, nor the wife have authority over her own body, but the man has authority over his wife's body and the wife has authority over her husband's body. So what Paul is doing here is not making, or Peter, rather, is doing here is not making an assessment of value, but rather he's taking great care and being sure that we affirm and celebrate God's plan for order and authority in the home, but also to be sure that we understand what submission does not mean. It does not mean that a wife can't ever disagree with her husband. Submission doesn't mean that she shouldn't think for herself. Submission does not mean that a wife should tolerate abuse. Submission does not mean that a wife's life is totally wrapped up in her husband. Instead, what it means is this. Think of it this way. Submission is a gift that a wife gives to her husband in a commitment to follow his leadership. It's a gift that she gives him in affirming his God-given role and that she does whatever she possibly can in order to support him as he attempts to set the pace for the family. So submission then is more of an attitude, it's more of an internal matter of honoring an earthly husband out of reverence, not just for him, but more importantly out of reverence for Christ. So that's what submission is. And again, Wives, you're going to have to figure out what that looks like through various seasons of your life in marriage. But let me just tell you that submission is not just an issue for women to think through. Husband, you need to think through this issue because you need to be sure that you are an intentional, godly leader. Most women that I've talked with over the years regarding their struggles with this subject, their issue is not so much with the issue of submission as it is often the absence of leadership on the part of their husband. Some women are left in the unenviable position of trying to follow somebody who simply won't lead. And they're stuck because someone has to lead our children's hearts, somebody has to disciple these children, somebody has to set the spiritual pace for our family, someone has to define boundaries for what we're gonna do, what we're not gonna do, and if my husband won't do it, then what do I do? That's a very common question that I've had to answer. And so men I hope you didn't come this morning thinking this is going to be a great day for my wife. (laughs) The reality is this should be a reminder that your wife longs for you to lead. If you're a wife, you need to see submission as part of the overall plan of the Christian life. It is one of the main ways that you express what it means to be a Christian exile. It is your main strategy because all of you live with imperfect husbands. Now this text is really amazing because it not only commends submission in general, but it also affirms the strategic value of submission in dealing with imperfect or disobedient husbands. Look at what it says, back to verse 1. Be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When it says even if some... Do not obey the word. That can mean disobedience in general. That can also mean outright unbelief. So what is a godly woman to do if she's married to an ungodly man? How does she win him? How does she win him to Christ? How does she win him to obedience when he doesn't seem to want to go there? Peter's answer is a life of godly submission. Rather than nagging him, rather than berating him, Rather than being condescending to him, she is to win him without a word. This doesn't mean that she gives him the silent treatment, nor that she would never talk with him about the condition of her soul. But the idea is that the primary way that she wins him is by living a Christ-like life in front of him. That she focuses her attention not on her husband's shortcomings, not how disappointing her marriage is, not how she wishes he would be different, but instead by focusing her heart and mind on the beauty of Christ and figuring out how do I pursue Christ-likeness. And in so doing, she then leverages the power of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction in her husband's life. And that, dear women, will last far more than your attempt to be the personalized version of the Holy Spirit for your husband. I'm just going to let that one sit right there. <laughs> the text says that she lives a life of respectful and pure conduct. Verse two, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. This, this, I think, puts some color on what submission means. Respect and pure conduct is not in reference to the husband. Respect and pure conduct is in reference to God. So the idea is this, this woman is living because of the beauty that she sees in God. She's trying to live in a way that honors God with purity and with, the idea is fear. That's the word behind the word respect. And her husband sees that and there's something inordinately attractive to him about that. It it, it wins his heart as he sees the evident display of something he doesn't possess within his own soul. And that's not only good for how you reach a non-believer, but that's also how you reach a disobedient believer. You know, there have been a few instances when in an argument with my wife, I was wrong. I can think of two in the last 24 (laughs) years. Actually, there's been many more than two. In the midst of an argument, have you ever found it difficult to argue with someone who just isn't going to argue, instead they're going to be godly? Man, that makes me mad. (laughs) And I have found on a few occasions, in one of those sort of just hissy fits where I'm just not being godly, that my wife very wisely has lovingly said something to this effect, Mark, I love you. And when you're ready to be godly and have this conversation, I'm happy to have it. But I'm not going to have it when you're acting in an ungodly way. What do you say to that? (laughs) -uh. (laughs) Nuh-uh. Well, you, you, you. I mean, it's like the nuclear option. (laughs) right? And I'll tell you, in those moments, that's when the Holy Spirit begins to do deep surgery in my own soul. So if you're married to an imperfect husband, this is really important for you to understand. If you're married to a man who's terribly disobedient or just an outright unbeliever, this is is a really important verse. Your strategy is joyful, God-centered, obedience-oriented submission. And this, according to this text, is a powerful strategy that the Lord can use to reach your husband's heart. Now, for some of you, you came here alone today. You'll go back home, and your husband won't even ask you what church was about. I can only imagine the level of pain and discouragement that you must battle, and I want you to understand, if that's where you're in, living as an exile in your home is uniquely costly. It takes faith to believe that your godly submission could actually result in the evangelism or the conviction of your husband, but this text says that is the best strategy. So living by faith in God in every arena, even the most intimate and personal, is what the exiled life is all about. And so let me just say to those of you women who are in this very position today, you can trust the Lord's strategy for submission. You can. Peter says this is an effective way for God to reach a disobedient husband. So he affirms it in that way. The second thing he affirms is that submission is the essence of true beauty. Verse 3, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear, it's amazingly helpful and I think pastorally smart for Peter to speak this way he knows people he knows women after all God's design for women included a built-in desire for attractiveness every woman regardless of what age in history no matter what age in life feels this longing and yet here is yet another example of what it means to be an exile that transforms the very basics of life and culture. So he starts with a command for a woman not to be focused on external beauty. He even provides some examples, like the braiding of hair, the putting out of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear. And Peter knows that there are markers within every culture regarding what is attractive and what is beautiful. Just think how much money culturally is spent on beauty. read a few articles this week you know how much money last year was spent on beauty products a lot (laughs) seven billion dollars and then I read an article about women in Great Britain who spend the equivalent in their lifetime on average in their lifetime 474 equivalent days in front of a mirror that's a year and three months That averages to about three hours a week. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with this, and before you think I'm next going to be advocating for denim jumpers and culotte shorts, let me just (laughs) say that there's nothing inherently wrong with the pursuit of beauty. What Peter instead is saying is that a Christian exile needs to think through where true beauty lies. Being a Christian exile does not mean that you should be unattractive or you should look odd. I think that's why the New American Standard translates this verse, let your adornment not be merely external. The word merely isn't in the text, but my guess is that as the men were translating, they were like, hey, put the word mere in there, put the word mere in there. Merely external, right? So he's not arguing against being attractive. What he's concerned about is being only physically attractive. He wants Christian exiles to get underneath the standard cultural definition of beauty and see that true beauty lies in a submissive spirit. I think he doesn't leave the discussion about submissiveness here. He merely illustrates it and amplifies it. Look at verse 4. Let your adorning be the hymn person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. That's the same idea of what it means to have a submissive heart, which is very precious in God's sight. Clearly, the focus here is on internal beauty, the internal aspects of the heart. He's focusing on the kind of beauty that does not fade. He's focusing here on a beauty that is, relates to a gentle and quiet spirit, and the kind of beauty that is precious in God's sight. So Peter's vision here is of a group of women who live in the world as Christian exiles— the kind of woman whose heart is set on Christ, whose identity isn't, doesn't rest on if she's the prettiest girl in the room, but rather rests on who she is in Christ, who is pursuing godliness. And Peter, in effect says, that's the kind of woman that's really attractive. And frankly, that's the kind of woman who yields, who wields, rather, an enormous amount of power. She's attractive because she reflects. What is truly lovely, namely the glory of God. She's powerful because she's modeling a countercultural and, frankly, transformational way of living. Let's be honest, there are plenty of pretty women who have nasty hearts. And Peter paints a very different picture of what it means to be a woman when you are a Christian exile. Now, I know you sense the thin ice that I'm on here, so let me just make a few applications. Men, what kind of beauty and attractiveness do you praise? If you have daughters in your home, or as it relates to your wife, what do you uphold? Do you only compliment and praise physical beauty or do you also importantly affirm the nature of what's happening in the heart? If if you're a single man, what kind of woman are you looking for and attracted to? Where does submissiveness and a quiet spirit fall in the order of priority for you? Men, how are you helping your wife? How are you helping your daughters? How are we helping our fellow sisters in Christ to to cherish and to love a beauty that isn't just external, but is heart-based? Women, can I ask you what kind of beauty and attractiveness is really valuable to you? Do you find your security first and foremost in your external appearance, or is there something deeper, something more foundational, something that relates to a quiet and gentle heart? Do you love godliness? Do you love gentleness? Do you love submission, or do you just want to be known as hot or turn ahead? Do you think, for instance, in regards to your appearance, are you careful that you send the right message? If people saw you, would they be inclined to think that there's something uniquely attractive about you, or does who you are just simply fit with everything else that's in the culture in terms of sensuality and lack of modesty? Moms, you can create a beautiful appetite for your sons in regards to the kind of woman that they should look for. Older women, How are you helping younger women understand how to live in a way that fits with this text? You know what we need? You know what the church needs, what this church needs? We need an army of older women who can model unfading beauty, who can mentor younger women and help them understand what the beauty is of a submissive and godly heart over decades. You can help push back the tsunami of a culture that defines beauty in categories that do not fit with 1 Peter chapter 3. And we need women like you who could help affirm godly submission. I've never been to a funeral for a grandma that the grandchildren praised her for her looks. You know what they praised her for? How she prayed, how she loved how she cared for grandchildren, the little birthday cards that were sent with the important words underlined and then Bible verses. The question is what do we define as truly attractive? What is really beautiful? And the Bible answers that true beauty is deeper than just what you look like on the outside, that real attractiveness and living as a Christian exile mean embracing the value of godly submission. There's something incredibly beautiful and powerful and rare of a woman who has a gentle and quiet spirit. So Peter affirms the strategy of a submission. He affirms the beauty of submission. And then finally, he affirms here the legacy of submission. In verses 5 to 6, he connects the value of submission to an historical record. He aims to anchor what he is saying here in an extensive legacy. That It's almost as though he anticipates some women would say, Peter, you don't know the husband that I'm married to. Or you don't know the culture that I live in, the pressure, the, 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 the cultural dynamics that just play on my soul. That's why Peter, I think, writes verse five. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. That verse is so important. He connects their present submission to two things. The historical record of godly women who have gone before them and secondly to that phrase, who hoped in God. That's really, really important. Why is hoping in God in this context really important? Because submission requires that you believe that God's definition of beauty is better than the world's definition, and that requires that you hope in him. It means when you stand in front of a mirror and you feel insecure and you're tempted to project something that everybody else is projecting, and you're like, you know what, I'm not gonna project that. In that moment, you say, God, I'm hoping in your definition of beauty, not the world's definition of beauty. And when you begin to feel well, fear, well then maybe no man will be attracted to me and I'll just be, be stuck for the rest of my life in this singleness that I don't want. Then you go to, but I'm going to hope in you. And I'm going to believe better to have no man than to have no character and integrity. To hope in God means that Submission is pursued with intentionality because you believe that God's glory is truly worth pursuing. And you pursue his glory, and you love his glory because you hope in him. And then when it comes to a disobedient husband, oh my, how a woman must hope in God in order for that to be her strategy. Because your natural tendency, if you live with an ungodly husband, would be to go to all other sorts of places to try and manipulate him, to try and, and convince him, to try and argue with him, to try and berate him. And before you know it, your heart can go down a path of bitterness. And it takes an enormous amount of hope to be able to uncurl your fingers and say to Christ, here's my husband, and even though my marriage isn't what I want it to be, even though he's not what I want him to be, I'm not going to go down this other path. Instead, I'm going to be a godly woman. I'm going to trust that you can reach my husband because you're more powerful than my ability to manipulate the circumstance." And dear sisters, that takes an enormous amount of hope in God. To have a gentle and quiet spirit when you're married to a difficult man requires an enormous amount of faith. To go home after this service with no connection to what you heard today, as I prayed with a woman after first service, going back to a hard, hard man. Talk about an exile. And yet here is the call for women to entrust themselves to the one who judges justly. That's why Peter cites Sarah. He goes back to perhaps maybe the most revered woman from Israel's history. Verse 6 says, As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, you are her children if you do good. When it says she called him Lord, that's, that's in reference to Genesis 18, when, when Sarah and Abraham are old, they don't have any children, and the point is, is that even in their old age, Sarah still respects her husband, even though she has a long record of Abraham's failures, and they were many, yet she still chooses the path of respect, despite Abraham's imperfections, even despite moments of disobedience. Here still is a woman who respects her husband, and so Peter calls on these women to follow her example. He says, you are her children if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Why frightening? Hmm. If you're married to an ungodly man, you know why it's frightening. Submissive godly women joined the ranks of amazing women throughout biblical history who lived with imperfect husbands and still honored God and who went back to their home and chose to love a hard man, who go back to their home and make dinner for a hard man, who in the midst of an argument refuse to go down the pathway of sin and choose to love a hard man or to live in a marriage and make love to a hard man. So submissiveness is not just something that women are to embrace passively. It is the way in which married women express the beauty of what it means to be a Christian exile in one of the most personal and intimate arenas known to Christianity. So if you are a woman who has a godly husband, who's trying to follow Jesus and lead your home, oh please, you need to regularly cheer him on. Be an encouragement to him. Affirm his leadership in your life and in the home. Help him, encourage him, exhort him. If you find yourself as a married woman in a situation where you're submissive and having to be submissive to an ungodly man, I wanna remind you, encourage you, and exhort you that the fact that you're a follower of Jesus means that you're free to love a hard person. And everything that's been unkind and every time you've been gracious when you could have not been, Jesus has seen it all. And you, like Jesus, don't revile when reviled. You don't threaten when you suffer. You just keep entrusting yourself to the one who judges justly. And Jesus has seen every tear you've ever shed, every heartache of disappointment, every time you've held your tongue and the times when you've been kind and gracious when you thought, this guy doesn't deserve any of it. And Jesus has seen everything Every bit of that. And that's what it means to be in exile. The Bible calls you to not be afraid. Instead, to to follow the Lord and how you demonstrate Christ's likeness, to be a a godly, submissive wife to an ungodly husband. That you resist the temptation to try and be the Holy Spirit, to resist the trap of discouragement because your marriage is disappointing. Disappointing. And instead what you do is simply follow the example of Jesus realizing that being a submissive wife to an ungodly man is part of what countless women have done. It is what is truly attractive and it's a really powerful strategy. So don't give up. Be godly, be kind, Do your best to follow his lead, and maybe God would apply pressure to your husband's life because of what he sees in you. Submission doesn't mean that you give up. Submission, rather, is the most strategic and powerful way godly women live as exiles in the world. It's God's plan A to reach your husband. Would you pray with me? This morning as we go to prayer, I just want to give you a moment. We come from all different walks of life, all different positions, married, unmarried, men, women. I just want you to take a moment to pray as it relates to where this message finds you today in your position in life. If you're a single man, You'd pray, God, give me an appetite for what's really attractive. If you're a single woman, that you'd pray, God, let a quiet and spirit heart be true of me. If you're a husband, that you would lead and pray that God would help you to lead well. And if you're a wife, that you just even now maybe thank the Lord for your husband in his imperfections. maybe even acknowledge areas of bitterness that can easily spring up. And then if you're one of those women who live in a really hard marriage, I want to pray for you right now and ask all you who are a part of this service to join me. Lord, we pray over our sisters who every day live very hard lives. They're trying to follow you, and their hearts break because they are united to someone who doesn't want to follow you or doesn't even believe. Morning after morning, they wake up and have to figure out how to follow Jesus, and I pray for them. I ask you to give them grace. I pray you give them strength. I pray that the love of Jesus would meet their needs so deeply that they'll be satisfied in you and then can love an ungodly or at times hurtful husband. Lord, you know the pain, you know the tears, you know the struggle. Oh, would you minister grace to these valiant women who are trying to live as exiles in their own marriage. We pray for the conversion of their husbands. Oh, Lord, let it be that many would come to faith in Christ. As they see the godliness of their wives, would you bring conviction on their hearts? Lord, even today, bring some into the kingdom because of what they see in the life of their wife. And thank you that at the end of the day, Jesus, you suffered so that we could walk through difficulties like these and know that you understand. So come minister grace.